This is the day the Lord hath made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. You know, there's a lot of reasons for us to rejoice in this day. Number one, and just, of course, that we're all here together this morning and having this opportunity to worship God. It's also going to be an incredibly beautiful day. Yesterday was a beautiful day. I think today is supposed to get up to like 85 or 86. It's almost like it's about time. It starts to warm up a little bit. Tomorrow's supposed to be 78 degrees. The next day, 76 degrees, and then it's back down to 59 again. So anyway, uh, this is a, a really great day to be together with one another. Listen, if you are visiting with us this morning, we want you to know that you are a welcome guest. And if you hear anything that I say from up here, uh, then certainly feel free to talk to me about it afterwards. And if I can give you an answer, I certainly will. Or I, we can study it together, or I can maybe direct you to someone who can give you some answers. Three weeks ago, or three Sundays ago, I, I asked you to imagine yourself owning a bookstore. And I said that inside that bookstore, uh, you're going to have you know, at least two sections in the bookstore. You're going to have a fictional section, and you're going to have a non-fictional section. In the fictional section, you'll have books that, uh, that talk about people and places and events that are not necessarily true. They are within the mind of the, the author themselves. Or it might be filled with fantasy. It might be things like, um, you know, Harry Potter, or it might be books like uh, Don Quixote, or it might be things about Star Trek, or about the Easter Bunny, or whatever, but it's, it's, it's fictional things, okay? It's fantasy, it's Greek mythology. But then another section is a fictional area, and in the, or the non-fiction area, and in the non-fiction area, those are books that tell about people, places, and events that are true. Uh, they're the, they are the real deal. They are historical in, in nature. And so I ask you to, you know, to think about Jesus Christ. Where would you place him if you were to place him in your bookstore? Would you place him in the nonfiction area? Or would you place him in the uh, fiction area? And, and we talked about uh, Romans, the first chapter, verses 1 down through 6. And in it, we talked about the fact that, you know, Jesus has a lineage that goes back at least to David himself, which tells you that he is a historical character. And we said, well, some people might say, well, you know what? I don't believe the Bible. Well, then there are extra biblical people who have written concerning Jesus Christ. And we noted Josephus or Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish Roman historian back in 90 AD, wrote his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, and so on, about. Uh, Jesus Christ saying that Pontius Pilate uh, did condemn Jesus Christ to the cross and he even goes on to say that he resurrected and that people are following after him. Fifty years later there was another fellow that came online who was a he was a, 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 a Greek, his name was Lucian, and he talked about Jesus Christ as just a simple fact. And he was not a friend of Christianity. In fact, he was very antagonistic about Christianity, but he talks about the historical Jesus Christ, that he was crucified, and that he even goes on to say that he was resurrected and that many of the followers follow after him. And so there you have extra-biblical characters or individuals who say, listen, Jesus Christ was a historical character. He did die on the cross, and he was resurrected from life. And because of that, Paul goes on to say that, listen, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus that surrounds three words. Well, it surrounds faith, it surrounds obedience, and belonging. And so we talked about the sequence, or Paul's sequence, of how one comes into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is faith which produces obedience, which produces a relationship with Christ. And that occurs when one is baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. Then there's another one that I want you to think about. 
And that is the Bible itself. You might have noticed this morning that we sang, I think, was at least three songs that centered around the scriptures or around the Bible itself. So if you have your bookstore, where would you place the Bible? Would you place it in the fictional area or would you place it in the non-fiction area? Where would your Bible be placed? Well, beginning this morning, I'm going to talk to you about your amazing Bible. In fact, we're going to spend the next two Sundays talking about the Bible. And what I'm going to do this morning is I want to give you some, you know, some just some basic information. Some might say it's trivia type things. And then I want to overview the, the Bible for you, okay? And then next week, I'm going to talk to you about Bible languages and, and Bible translations. And I'm going to do that because I believe that the book that is sitting in your lap or that you have downloaded on some kind of electronic device, that it is an amazing book and that you can have confidence in it in terms of its accuracy, in terms of it talking about history that is accurate or it talks about uh, geography that is accurate or maybe even the science parts about it that are very accurate and that the only thing that even is a little bit called into question within the scriptures would be the miraculous part that is there. But because of all the other accuracy, because of all the rest of the accountability of it, then you can take belief and you can step into those areas of miracles that demand our faith being in, in action. So where to begin? Well, we begin by asking, well, what is the best-selling book in the world? And obviously you're going to say, well, it's the Bible, right? Well, when you talk about best-selling, it refers to the estimated numbers of copies sold of each book rather than the number that have been produced, okay? And so what are the number one books? Well, Guinea's Book of World Records, that talks about different kinds of books that are bestsellers. It talks about religious books. And in the religious book section, it will say, well, you know what? There are over 800 million copies of the book of Quran for those who practice uh, Islam. And so 800 million copies of this religious book. Or the Mormons have at least 190 million books of Mormon that have been sold or have been, been uh, purchased. And then you have non-religious books. Non-religious books would be like the little red book that Mao Zedong had put out that talks about his life and a number of his thoughts about life, and it's called the little red book. And that surprised me because I thought the little red book was written by Harvey Pinnock, who teaches you how to play golf better. But, but that's the little red book, and it sold over 800 million copies. And some say that it may have went into the billions. No one really knows because of the nature of, of that, that uh, country it, it, it itself. And then there are pic, uh, fictional bestsellers. For instance, Don Quixote. Uh, Miguel Cervantes, you know, he wrote this book here, and it has sold over 500 million copies. Of course, you know, of Rowling, you know, he wrote the Harry Potter series or the saga. He, he, they sold over 450 million copies of, of that. The Goosebumps, bunk, the Goosebumps series, which is our, our children's books, they're written by R.L. Stein. Well, it sold over 300 million copies. The Tale of Two Cities by Dickinson, you know, it's sold like 150 million copies. There are token books that are sold like 100. There's a lot of books that have been sold like that of the, the fictional areas. But the number one best-selling book in the world, hands down, is the Holy Bible, the, the Bible itself. Five billion copies. 
And within the last 50 years, 3.9 billion of them have been purchased. So there are a lot of Bibles that have gone out into the world. Just a piece of trivia for you to think about. Uh, what do you think is the most stolen book in the world? The Bible. The Bible is the most stolen book in the world. And you say, well, how in the world do they, how has it been stolen so much? Well, because we have them in church buildings, and sometimes we have copies of Bibles laying around in church buildings, and people say, well, it's a church building, so you know what? Why not take a Bible? And so they just kind of, I don't think they do it by thinking of anything evil or, or, or bad. I just think that, you know, the Bible is there. It's a church Bible. Maybe it's for me. And, and listen, if you decide to take one, then God bless you. You know, go ahead and take one. If it'll help you and help you come closer to Jesus Christ and God, then that's what that really is about. And then, of course, there are those Bibles that are in, you know, that are put out by the Gideons in all the hotel rooms. And so people uh, like to take those as, as well, along with the, the baby soaps and towels. So anyway, but the Bible, that book that is sitting in your lap right now or on your electronic device is the most bought, the most precious a book around. In fact, it, they sell over 100 million copies of the Bible annually. 100 million copies. Guess what country sells the most Bibles in the world? China. China sells the most copies in the world. And I thought, well, wait a second, they're communists. They don't even believe in, in, in God. And there might be some truth to that, but also they really like the yen. So if it's going to make money, you know, whatever their yen might be, they're going to sell lots of of, of Bibles. So you have an amazing book that is setting in your life. You have it in your lap, the most popular book in the world, the most read book in the world, the most purchased book in the world, the most stolen book in the world setting right in your laps. And it absolutely is amazing. So where to begin? Well, I think one of the places to begin is to talk about just the word Bible itself. It comes from the Greek word ta biblia, it's a word that simply means the scrolls or the books. That's what it means. And that's why when you go into some bookstores, you can find, you know, the fisherman's Bible or the hunter's Bible or the knitter's Bible or the gardener's Bible. Well, the, it simply means a book or a scroll, but the Bible that we have in our laps or, in our, or on our devices is the Holy Bible. And it's called the Holy Bible simply because it is one that is set apart as unique and special from any other Bible that is out there, if you will, because it's the mind of God. It's the, the heart, the intentions of what God is uh, about. And so it's called the scrolls or the books. So where did it come from? Well, it derived from the ancient city of Biblos which was a city that was known for ancient writing materials that it produced and sent around the ancient world. So that were cut on as a means and then attached to our Bibles themselves. So here's what we're going to do is I'm just going to give you an overview of this amazing book that's in your lap or on your device this morning. And we're going to just start off by just talking about what your Bible is about. You've had a number of passages that have been read to you this morning. Psalm 119 is an incredible book because it really does honor the Word of God. Words like precepts or ordinances or decrees or laws or, or words, they're used over and over and over again in this psalm. I mean, it's an incredible psalm in and of itself. How blessed are those who walk, whose ways are blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. It just goes on and on like that throughout this incredible 
a chapter in the Psalms about how precious it is. Well, your Bible is divided into two sections. There is, of course, the Old Testament, which is written primarily in the language of Hebrew, with a smattering of Aramaic in it. And then you have the New Testament, which reveals the covenant of Jesus Christ. And it is written, of course, in Koine Greek, with a smattering of Aramaic. In all, your Bible, it consists of 66 books. And in the Old Testament, you have 39 of those books, which means that there's like 920 chapters in those 39 books. In the New Testament, you have 27 books with 260 chapters in all, 1,189 1, chapters in your, your Bible. Now, it's, if you're wondering, well, how did, can you remember that there's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the Old Testament? Well, three times nine in the Old Testament is 27, and that's how many is in the, old, new, in the new, uh Testament. There are 31,102 verses in your Bible. There are 611,000 uh, words in the original language, whether it's in Hebrew or whether it's in Koine Greek. But when you start talking about modern-day translations, as we will next week, then you'll recognize that there are more words that are there. For instance, in the authorized King James Version of the 16th century, then there are 780, or 788,258 words in the King James. But if you're reading a thought-for-thought -thought translation, say like the New Living Translation or the New International Version, it's not a word-for-word -word translation. It's a thought-for-thought -thought translation. So it's going to be longer than the original because many of the Greek words are compound words. Which means there's a number of words that go with just simply one word, and to get that thought out there, you've got to use that. And if you're using thought-for-thought -thought translation, then they're giving you the intention of what those original words meant. And so they're even going to be longer, so you're going to have more words there. So at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, the, the Bible is a long book. Well, have you read Moby Dick? Well, it's longer than Moby Dick. Have you read Harry Potter's books? You know, H.K. Rowling's book. Have you read her books? Well, it's not as long as those books. And a lot of people have read the Harry Potter sagas and so forth. And so the Bible is longer than some, much shorter than, than others. The longest book in the Old Testament in the Bible is the book of Jeremiah. Some may have thought, well, no, listen, the longest book has to be the Psalms. There's 150 chapters that are there. Or, or it's got to be Isaiah. But they may have more chapters, but I, Jeremiah has the most words. So it's the longest book in the Old Testament. The shortest book is 3 John. The longest chapter is Psalm 119. I think there's 176 verses in that section of, of Scripture that is there. The shortest chapter is Psalm 117. So you said, I don't need to do some Bible reading today. That's only two chapters along there. Uh, the shortest verse is John eleven twenty five. So if someone says you need to memorize the passage of Scripture, say, I'm going to choose John eleven twenty five, which says, Jesus wept. And that's the end of that one there. The next one would be 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19, pray without ceasing. And then, of course, the longest verse is Esther 8 and verse 9. It has 80 words in that single verse. So your Bible is absolutely incredible when you think about things like that. It was written approximately, took approximately about 1,600 years to write, both the Old Testament and New Testament. 
it took about 1,500 years to write the Old Testament and about 50 to 75 years to write the New Testament. And the reason why there's some discrepancy there is because there's some debate over, you know, when John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation, did he write it earlier in his years or later in his years? If it's later in his years, and somewhere around 93 to 96 A.D., then, you know, that makes, means it took longer to write the, the Bible, and that's why you get that 75-year thing. What's amazing about your Bible is this. It took 40 authors who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures. It came from all walks of life, shepherds and kings and prophets and farmers, priests, poets, scribes, doctors such as Luke the physician, a tent maker like Paul the apostle, and of course, fishermen like Peter, James, and John. So you have these people who are there who were writers of the scriptures, uh, James was not a writer of the scripture, but anyway, Peter and John, who were, who were a fisherman. And what's interesting about that is that it took almost 1,600 years to write the Bible and 40 authors, and yet there's this continuity that is accurate when it comes down to history, where it comes down to ge ge geography, going up south or going down or going east or going uh, west. It's accurate even when it comes down to certain scientific things. It's not a science book, but it affirms a lot of the science that we now know about to today. So it's, it's an incredible book. Let me just kind of break down the Old Testament for you very quickly. Your Old Testament has four sections within it. In those sections, the first is called the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the, the Bible written by Moses or authored by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch makes up about one-fifth of your Bible. One-fifth of your Bible is the Pentateuch. In the Pentateuch, it begins with Genesis, the creation of the world and the creation of man, the fall of man, and the first prophecy in the scripture in Genesis 3 and verse 16, it says that to Satan that this one that is coming from the seed is going to, you're going to bruise him on the hill, but he's going to crush your head and deal you a death blow. And so it starts talking about one who is going to be coming. Of course, the first murder is recorded there. And of course, the world goes towards evil and God destroys it with a worldwide flood that is scientifically a, 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 a fact. Um, inside Genesis, you'll find the patriarchal period that is fatherhead periods. And so you have Abraham who's called from the era of the Chaldees or Babylon. He goes to what is now modern day uh, Israel south of the southwest of the dead sea to beersheba there and there he is he is told that god is going to make him a great nation and from his seed all nations will be blessed spiritually speaking he's talking about isaac who will come into his life as an old man and sarah as an old woman isaac would have two sons jacob and esau jacob would become the patriarch later jacob's name is going to be changed to israel and Israel is going to have 12 sons. And they're going to be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And they find themselves eventually because of a famine in Egypt. But as you begin the book of Exodus, in Exodus, things begin to change because it says there rose a king who did not know Joseph and all that he had done in the past. And that they were so great in number that he decided to enslave the people. And they were enslaved for over 400 years until God raised up a law, a deliverer in Moses, the lawgiver. And he would take them out of the land of Egypt, cross the Red Sea, come to the Mount of Sinai, and there the law would be given 
to them which would usher in the books of the law. Exodus beginning in chapter 20. More definition in, uh, in the book of Leviticus. And then as you get to Deuteronomy, Moses is starting to go out. Joshua is going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. But before they go there, they need to hear the law. So it's the second reading of the law, or Deuteronomy, as it is called today. So that's the, the Pentateuch. Then you have Hebrew history. And Hebrew history talks about, you know, when the children of Israel entered into the promised land and how they lived their, their lives, good and bad, all the way to the point that they become extremely idolatrous. The kingdom is a divided they become idolatrous, and the result of that is after many years, God would send the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity, the southern kingdom into Babylonian captivity. They'd be there for like 120 years until Cyrus the Great of Persia will send them back home. So you have Hebrew history. You have Joshua and Judges and, and Ruth and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. If you go post-exilic, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther would make up Hebrew history and how those people live and how God's people live. Couched in between Hebrew history and and the prophets are, is wisdom literature, Job's and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and Song of Solomon, written primarily by, a lot by David, a lot by King Solomon, and then, of course, the sons of Korah and a, and a number of others in the Psalter itself. And so you can look into wisdom literature about how to live wise lives that gives you a lot of ideas about how to parent and how to deal with your, your, your husband or how to deal with your wife and how to, to use wisdom in walking in life itself. And then finally you have the prophets. And the prophets, you know, they are made up of what is called the major prophets and the minor prophets. And someone would say, Don will say, well, okay, well, what's the difference between a major prophet and a, and a minor prophet? Major prophet just means that they're longer books. They have more chapters. So we have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentation, Ezekiel and, and, and Daniel compared to the minor prophets who are shorter chapters. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, uh, Zach, uh, Zechariah, Haggai, or Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I used to really run through those things fast. But in school, they taught us how to memorize them chronologically because they're not written chronologically. So, I, so sometimes I can remember them chronologically and sometimes I can remember them as they're placed down in the books. Anyway, so the prophets are about taking the children of Israel in their Hebrew history and turning them back to God. Some of it foretells the one that is coming, but mostly the prophets are about trying to get the children of Israel to live godly lives and to leave idolatry and injustice and fairness and move back toward God. That's what the prophets were about. So if you were to say, well, what is the message of the Old Testament? Well, the message of the Old Testament is one is coming. There's one that's going to come, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's who's coming. That's the overview of the Old Testament. Now the New Testament. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament also has four sections. Some say you have five sections, but I think for easy ability this morning, four sections. You have the Gospels. Remember, the Old Testament is one is coming. The Gospel is one is come. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and John, they're going to write about the Savior of the world coming into the, the world. And so it's about his life, Jesus' life, his teachings, his signs, miracles, and wonders that he performed. 
and with an emphasis, his death on the cross for the sins of the world and the promise in terms of his resurrection from the grave. And so you have the life of Jesus, the good news of Jesus found in the four Gospels, followed up by the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the history of the first century church. Beginning in Jerusalem, when Jesus tells his apostles that there'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. The baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, and then over 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost, and then how the church just grew rapidly with a strong influence from chapter 12 to the end of the book on the three missionary journeys of Paul as the gospel went out into the known world and into the Gentile world. If you want to know how to become a Christian, then the book of Acts is great because it has, it has example after example or event after event or story after story of people who became Christians. And you can see those examples of what all they did to become Christians. You can read about Lydia and her household or the Philippian jailer and his household or the, um, or the disciples of John in Acts the 19th chapter or those believers in Samaria in the 8th chapter, or the Ethiopian eunuch in the 8th chapter and, and so on and so forth. So you have, excuse me, you have the, the book of Acts which is the history of that first century church followed up by epistles, 21 epistles in your New Testament. Epistles are nothing more than letters. Letters that are written to people, persons, or places, or just maybe a general kind of thing. For instance, in the, in the epistles, there are 13 of them that are attributed to Paul the Apostle, so they're called the Pauline epistles. Of those 13, four of them are prison epistles. Paul was in kept, or is incarcerated in Rome the first time for around a year and a half, two years, and in that period of time, he will write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and he'll write a letter to a fellow by the name of Philemon about his slave Onesimus that's going to be coming back to him, and they live in Colossae. And then he writes a book, a letter to the church in Rome. He'll write a letter to, a couple letters to the church in Corinth, answering some of Chloe's questions that they have within that congregation as they are struggling with some things. You have the region of Galatia in Asia Minor that he's going to write a letter uh, to. He'll write letters to first the Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. He's going to write to let, letters to uh, friends of his personal letters like Timothy, who was a young protege whom he left behind in Ephesus to become the evangelist there. So he'll write first and second Timothy to him. And then he'll write a letter to Titus, whom he left on the island of Crete to establish elders in every place. And then, of course, I already mentioned Philemon. In the epistles, you have general epistles. What's a general epistle? Well, a general epistle is not directed towards any one person or any one place. It's general. It's kind of like a shotgun into the church that is scattered throughout the world. And you have men like the Apostle Peter who writes a book, writes two letters that have his name, First and Second Peter. John, also an apostle, writes First, Second, and Third John, a half-brother of Jesus. James will write the book of James. Jude, another half-brother of Jesus, will write the book of of Jude, and finally you come down to the book of Revelation. John the Apostle, now an old man, writes the book of Revelation. And the story of Revelation, which is a great book to the end of, of the Bible, is that God's followers are those who are victorious. It may not seem it in the world in which you live, but you are the winners. 
you are the victors. Be faithful even unto death, and you'll receive a crown of life. So all I've said in very quickly is that you can have confidence in this amazing Bible. It is historically, geographically, scientifically accurate in every way. And the Bible is so sure of itself that it's not afraid to be challenged by anyone according to those things that are there. So this one we've done an overview. Next week I'll talk to you about Bible languages and Bible translations that I think are so interesting but they're important because I think it will build your confidence in what the scriptures really are about. Your amazing Bible. Listen to this here that I want to share with you. Your amazing Bible, it contains the, the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are, are holy. Its precepts binding, its stories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored. Heaven is open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, and good the design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory. It should rule the heart and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, Preferably, it is a mind of a mind of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It involves the highest responsibility, with reward for its greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Pray it in. Read it through. Live it out. And of course, pass it on. In your laps, on your electronic devices, is an amazing, an amazing book. Salvation is found within its pages. And as I mentioned, it's the mind, it's the intentions, it's the heart of God for those who would follow after him. In fact, for all people. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God or is God breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished or adequately equipped for every good work. Jesus said in John, the 8th chapter, in verse 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's your amazing, incredible Bible that you have in your lap. I'd encourage you to be a reader of it on a regular basis. So if you'd like to respond to God's invitation, it's simply yours. We make it every Sunday. Won't you come while together we stand and as we sing?